What dark power are Ahsoka's villains after? Welcome back to Nerdist News. I'm Dan Casey, and today we're breaking down the latest episode of Ahsoka. Episode 6, titled Far, Far Away, brought us beyond the reaches of the known Star Wars universe to chart a course to Peridia. The episode was jam-packed full of jaw-dropping revelations, including a terrifying cult, long-awaited reunions, and clues about some of the villain's master plans. We're going to break it all down for you in just a moment, and as always, if you want to read all about it, Michael Walsh has you covered over on Nerdist. However, to talk about this in detail, we kind of have to spoil what happens in the latest Ahsoka. So, if you haven't seen it yet and you're worried about that sort of thing, well, leave now before it's too late. On second thought, tell me one of those stories. Very well. Okay, let's get into it, shall we? While last week's episode was a dark night of the soul for Ahsoka, this week was all about dark magic and the Night Sisters. Ahsoka's villains have been bubbling, bubbling, toiling, and troubling all season long. Thankfully, no Eye of Newt was needed because the Eye of Scion was more than sufficient to bring Morgan Elsbeth, Balin Skull, Shin Hati, and Sabine Wren to the nightmarish planet of Peridia. By using that massive hyperspace ring, they traveled to a galaxy even further, further away. One that people like Balin thought was a mere folktale the Jedi told the younglings back in the temple on Coruscant. But just like Han Solo told us in The Force Awakens... It's true. All of it. It's not just true, it's also something that redefined established Star Wars star lores about a powerful faction, the Night Sisters of Dathomir. The biggest revelation about this mystery planet ripped from Jedi youngling folklore is that it's apparently the ancient homeworld of the Dathomiri. It's also apparently a whale-offend graveyard because the ring surrounding the planet is made entirely of floating purgle bones, which is very metal. After flying through thunderstorms, we emerge at Minas Tirith, or maybe Minas Morgul, or maybe I should say Minas Morgan, because this ancient Dathomiri enclave is surrounded by massive statues of the Night Sisters. And speaking of the Lord of the Rings, these gigantic statues are basically creepier versions of the Argonath. But instead of pillars of kings, they are beacons of the Great Mothers pointing the way towards this locus of dark power. And after Ahsoka the White came back Gandalf-style from the World Between Worlds last week, it would be a shame to stop giving us Tolkien references. Because much like Middle-earth, Peridia is absolutely roiling with dark power. There are pockets, pockets of dark magic that are fomenting, fomenting something so terrifying it has even the most intimidating villains on the show ready to hightail it and run. Now, we could talk about Lord of the Rings until we're blue in the face, but instead let's focus on someone who actually is, Grand Admiral Thrawn. The so-called heir to the Empire has weathered his exile fairly well, all things considered. After being yeeted into another galaxy at the end of Star Wars Rebels, he managed to forge an alliance with the Night Sisters, keep his massive Star Destroyer the Chimera mostly intact and operational, and foster a legion of stormtroopers who worship him like a god-king. And apparently, folks, Kintsugi is the name of the game when you've been exiled beyond the reaches of the galaxy that you called home. It works for starships and for making armor look even cooler. Now, for those who don't know, Kintsugi is the Japanese art of fixing broken pottery by mending the disparate pieces using a gold-tinted lacquer. They do this to highlight the imperfections. And these stormtroopers, called night troopers in the captions, have their armor stitched together with blood red and gold. It gives them this otherworldly look that feels somewhere between the Night Sisters and the Emperor's Royal Guard. But most impressive of all is Enoch, the captain of Thrawn's guard, played by the Expanse alum Wes Chatham. 
Enoch's golden mask is a modified range trooper helmet, and it's somewhere between a funeral mask and an Amesa helmet worn by the likes of Roman cavalry. You know, just in case you haven't thought enough about the Roman Empire this week already. Now, I've seen some folks out there comparing this to an Oni mask worn by samurai, but honestly, the bandits that Sabine fought were way more samurai-coated than Enoch. As for Enoch's name, it fits in with Thrawn's apparent status as a godlike figure to the Night Troopers. In the book of Genesis, it said that Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him. Here, Enoch walks alongside this military leader elevated to godlike status, and whoever Captain Enoch was has been subsumed by the ceremonial armor that he now wears. And the Book of Enoch, though apocryphal, also contained details about fallen angels, demons, and celestial secrets. Enoch also became Metatron, the angel who effectively served as God's second-in-command. And that's exactly what Enoch does for Thrawn here. But again, take all of this with a grain of crate. Salt. Because I am by no means a religious scholar. You're embarrassing yourself. While Thrawn may be revered by his troops as this godlike figure, he is far from omnipotent. As he freely states, he's relied on the Night Sister's dark magic to help him survive his exile. And that may have something to do with the Great Mother's purported ability to read the threads of fate. Now, Star Wars, and especially Ahsoka, are deeply concerned with notions of fate, prophecy, and destiny. And that's embodied by the Great Mothers who feel like the fates of Greek mythology. They're unspooling, measuring, and cutting the threads of fate through their dark magic. Or maybe more accurately, they're more like the three witches from Macbeth. And like Macbeth, they're gonna have Thrawn bring back some mysterious cargo that seems untimely ripped from Great Mother's tomb. At one point, Morgan mentions the catacombs of Peridia, and it seems abundantly clear that Thrawn brokered a deal to transport deceased Night Sisters back to the galaxy far, far away aboard the Chimera. When speaking of the exaggerated reports of Ahsoka Tano's death, Thrawn says, death and resurrection are common deceptions played out by Night Sisters and Jedi. So could it be that Thrawn is transporting these dead Night Sisters or Dathomiri warriors that the Great Mothers want to resurrect in the galaxy far, far away? Maybe in a manner similar to Maroc, an undead army of dark magicians to augment Thrawn's forces or to strengthen the Night Sisters after General Grievous killed most of their number. And quick side note here, I've seen a lot of speculation online about what the Night Troopers really are. Are they undead? Are they smoke puppets like Maroc? Honestly, I could see this going either way. They could just be regular-ass stormtroopers who, after spending a decade LARPing Lord of the Flies in this abandoned witch kingdom, have finally succumbed to madness and a cult of personality. Or they could be magical constructs, empty suits of armor held in Thrawn's thrall by the Night Sister's dark magic. It would certainly make sense given what we've seen of Morak already, as well as Thrawn's words to the Great Mothers. Great Mothers, I shall once again require the aid of your dark magic. Plus, Thrawn freely admitted to Morgan that their numbers have dwindled. Perhaps not everyone survived this process, or maybe they had to eat the non-believers for emergency rations. Only time will tell what their fate truly was. And speaking of fate, it's fitting to compare the Great Mothers to the Fates because in Greek they're known as the Moirai. And Ahsoka's convoy companion, the owl-like bird that watches over her, is named Morai. That bird is the embodiment of the daughter, the literal deus ex machina, that saved her from an untimely death back on Mortis in the Clone Wars. Ahsoka has escaped what felt like certain death not once, not twice, but three times now. Once on Mortis, once on Malachor when Ezra pulled her into the World Between Worlds, and lastly on Setos when she learned Anakin's final lesson and returned to the Land of the Living. 
And in doing so, she's perhaps altered the thread of destiny in a way that could go undetected at first by the Great Mothers. After all, they admit they didn't see Sabine coming. We did not see it. It is a loose thread. But fate as a concept is also something that Ahsoka feels deeply beholden to. Speaking of Sabine's betrayal, she tells Hu Yang she was fated to make that choice. There wasn't enough time to prepare her to make the right one. So was it really predestined, or is this more of a situation where Ahsoka, like so many other Force users, feel bound to the web of fate that's constantly weaving, coming undone, and spinning? Maybe it's the Force itself. And this idea of fate and destiny being things that can be read, understood, and predicted is at the core of another character's journey too, Balin Skull. Speaking with Shin, Balin recounts his disillusionment with the Jedi and his experiences during Order 66. When I was a bit older than you now, I watched everything I knew burn. I couldn't make sense of it at the time. As you get older, look at history, you realize it's all inevitable. The fall of the Jedi, rise of the Empire, it repeats again and again and again. In other words, he's saying... Again, it's like poetry, so sort if of they rhyme. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Every stanza kind of rhymes with the last one. Hopefully it'll work. Balin reveals that the power he's looking for is somewhere on Peridia, and it's likely what destroyed the Witch Kingdom of the Night Sisters to boot. What I seek is the beginning, so I may finally bring this cycle to an end. Or, to put it in more familiar terms from Kylo Ren... Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. During a 2015 press conference for Star Wars Rebels, series creator Dave Filoni spoke at length about the deep significance of names within the Star Wars universe. He said, names have a purpose. If you know someone's full name in folklore, then you have power over them, because to know their name gives you an understanding of who they are. To make up a name that's odd, you know, just for the sake of it, that sounds like a space world name, isn't really what Star Wars does. Uh, Dave, Therm Scissor Punch might beg to differ, but you do have a point. This feels abundantly clear in Ahsoka, with characters named for Arthurian legend, biblical figures, and so much more. But it feels particularly potent for this episode when you recall that Balin Skull and Shin Hati are named for Skull and Hati, wolves from Norse mythology. They are the twin wolves who chase the sun and moon, respectively, to try and devour them. During the events of Ragnarok, they finally catch their prey and then plunge the world into darkness. Now, Ragnarok in Norse mythology is an apocalyptic event. It culminates with the death of the gods and the destruction of the world. The world is then reborn, and the cycle begins anew. It's something that Balin referenced during earlier episodes. He spoke of new beginnings, but somehow I don't think he simply meant the rebirth of a new cycle. Rather, Balin wants to harness something so ancient, perhaps it was just a mere folktale in the Jedi archives. If an item does not appear in our records, it does not exist. While Shin says that sometimes stories are just stories, Balin knows that most folktales do contain at least a kernel of truth. And as Balin tells Shin, perhaps they flee a power greater than their own. Something calls to me. Can't you hear it? Something stirs here. Can't you see it? In this land of dreams and madness, a necropolis once ruled over by witches wielding dark magic, Balin hears a cry from the abyss. But it doesn't frighten him, it entices him. A bit of cosmic horror before trying to upset the cosmic balance. Whatever this immense power winds up being, Balin believes that he can use it to put an end to what Michael Walsh described on Nerdist as the vicious, inevitable cycle of war that Jedi and Sith have created in his own galaxy. Balin's plan obviously raises gigantic questions about, like, 
all of Star Wars. Is Peridia where the Force originated? Is this the epicenter from which it emanates across the universe? Or is it simply where the ancient Jedi and maybe the Sith first discovered how to tap into this immense power? And what would it mean for Balin to find the beginning of something like the Force, something that exists everywhere and surrounds us and binds us? How could someone even destroy something that powerful and omnipresent, something every living thing carries inside of them? Are the Great Mothers fleeing their planet because the Force is becoming too unbalanced, something too dark even for them to wield, something that would destroy Balin if and when he locates it? The future of the galaxy far, far away hangs in the balance on Peridia, but not because Thrawn is back. The Grand Admiral seeks a power that is fleeting, both literally and figuratively. Balin's skull, on the other hand, seeks something that likely predates the Jedi and the Sith, something that will put an end to both forever. A vicious cycle brought to a vicious end. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That is everything you need to know about Thrawn, the Great Mothers, Balin, and all of the dark magics and sinister schemes they're plotting on Ahsoka. We'll have even more deep dives in the days ahead as we count down to the final two episodes of the season. For now, though, tell us, what do you think that Thrawn and the Great Mothers are really up to? What's Balin's real plan here? And did you spot anything that we missed? Perhaps not. Let us know in the comments below, and for the latest and greatest in the world of pop culture, make sure you stay tuned to Nerdist.com.